Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And Derek, there's a lot going on in the world this week, so why don't we just start with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and specifically the oil embargo? What's been going on, Derek? Uh, yeah, the long-awaited oil embargo, European oil embargo, is now here, sort of, or will be here over the next six to eight months. Uh, The EU had been negotiating internally uh, with the hopes of announcing not just the embargo, but a whole sixth, uh, I think think it's been six now, uh, package of sanctions uh, at this week's EU summit, which took place on Monday and Tuesday. Uh, They were getting pushback primarily from Hungary, uh, but also a couple of other smaller EU members, Slovakia, Czechia, uh, who are dependent, more dependent on Russian oil than, uh, let's say, the rest of the bloc is. Uh, and since the EU has to do everything by consensus, there was they couldn't make an announcement until they had full kind of unanimity on, on what exactly this oil embargo was going to look like. Uh, they finally hashed out a deal to embargo Russian oil arriving by sea rather than by pipeline. Uh, this means that Hungary in particular, but also uh, the Czech Republic or Czechia, Slovakia, um, also Bulgaria got a bit of an exemption, not a, not a long-term one, but uh, they got some, so a longer period of time to phase this in. Those countries will see their will continue to receive Russian oil by pipeline um, as before. It'll be, I think, up to them. I I haven't seen any sort of demand that they uh, phase out Russian oil by any specific time. So it'll be up to them to to decide how to proceed. The rest of the bloc uh, is is going to phase out Russian oil uh, by the end of 2022, maybe, you know, into the first part of 2023 is the plan. Uh, that includes the two-thirds, something like two-thirds to three-quarters of Russian oil that comes by ship, plus a couple of larger pipeline importers, Germany and Poland, uh, have also said that they will individually phase out Russian oil on this timeline. So that combined, uh, you take the two-thirds that arrives by sea, two-thirds to three-quarters, you take what Germany and Poland import by pipeline, you're talking about probably 90% uh, of the Russian oil that is currently going to EU member states is not going to be going there, uh, assuming that they they hold to this uh, by the end of the year. That seems like that would have an enormous effect on Russia, or has Russia diversified its market to the degree where they're going to be able to weather this storm? So they have some tools to weather it. Um, the, the one, the big hope, I think, which um, there's some word that OPEC plus, or at least OPEC, uh, has agreed to speed up its sort of ramping up back to uh, full oil production or full levels of oil production a bit. So that may that may um, undercut this somewhat. But the big hope is that uh, this embargo will add to the already very high price uh, of oil. Uh, and then Russia can turn around and sell to other customers its two biggest 
alternatives would be China and India, it'll have to offer discounts. It'll have to sell it under market price uh, to make that viable for either country to sort of uh, because they're already, I mean, they're already importing enough oil. They're already importing the oil that they need. So the Russians are going to have to go somewhat on the offensive and offer discounts to get the get these countries to shift uh, supply around. But they can do that. And if the price rises high enough, then those discounts aren't going to hurt that much. They're going to, you know, keep them keep the Russians at the same uh, level of revenue that they're at now. So the question becomes. Uh, you know, if Russia turns to these Asian buyers and says, we'll give you, you know, 25% discount or we'll take a third off and oil prices go down to, you know, 80, 90 bucks a, a barrel, that's a real blow. Um, but if oil prices stay in the 110 to 120 or even higher range, you know, that's that's probably manageable for them. Yeah, so uh, we'll, I guess we'll see whether Russia is plunged into a recession. Right, I should say... Um, the overall sanctions package, which includes this embargo, uh, it includes uh, cutting Spare Bank, which is Russia's largest bank, from the SWIFT network. Uh, it includes a fairly significant expansion of the EU's individual asset and travel ban blacklist uh, is still being held up by Hungary, uh, which apparently wants the Hungarian government wants Patriarch Kirill, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, removed from the list of people who are set to be placed on the EU's blacklist. This is this would be the first time anybody, I think, has has uh, blacklisted Patriarch Kirill, and and uh, I'm not sure what the, the uh, what Hungary's specific objection is here, but but that's the word that they're uh, insisting that he be removed from the list. So let's say this goes through as planned. Are we seeing the reconstruction of, uh, it wouldn't obviously be quite the same, but uh, but a new type of Iron Curtain where there's actually a real division between Russia and uh, Western, Central, and Eastern Europe? Yes, I think this is part of what that would look like. Sort of divesting of uh, Russian oil is a, is a big step. You're not going to see a full-on... Iron Curtain come down unless the EU is prepared to tackle natural gas, which is the big remaining issue here and, and is, you know, more more sensitive for countries like Germany in particular uh, to talk about cutting off gas because you, you're talking about, you know, with oil, you're talking about, you know, boosting electric vehicles. You're talking about, you know, the ways to sort of work around the problem. When you talk about natural gas, you're talking about people heating their homes in winter, and that's politically much more sensitive. Um, so I, I don't think until that happens, and that's that could be years away, because uh, finding alternatives, finding alternative suppliers, you know, ramping up renewables is an alternative. You know, the problem with finding alternative suppliers, first, you have to find alternative suppliers that are willing to cross Russia to do this. Uh, and then you have to talk about, you know, how do you get the gas to Europe? Do you build a new pipeline from, say, Azerbaijan? Do you build out uh, infrastructure for handling liquefied natural gas so you can take larger, you know, more substantial imports from Qatar or the United States? Uh, all of these things are possible, but they're only possible over a period of years and with substantial financial investment. So uh, I think... Uh, you're not going to see the the curtain fully come down for a while now, if uh, if ever. 
So why don't we go to the war itself? And and last I checked, it seems like uh, the Russian military has captured most of the city of Severodonetsk, which is actually in the Luhansk People's Republic. Is that yes, correct? Yes, that's um, correct. Even though it's Severodonetsk. Well, it's in Luhansk Oblast. Uh, Oblast, so, oh, sorry. In, in, in uh, the Loha- uh, Luhansk it, it Oblast. It will be incorporated into the Luhansk People's got Republic, it. presumably. Got it. Thanks for correcting me. So uh, why don't you say what's been going on um, in terms of the fighting there? Yeah, so Severodonetsk has been uh, the focal point of the Russian offensive for some time now. It's the largest city in Luhansk that's still in, uh, was still at least, uh, in Ukrainian control. But this week, they the Russians moved in. Uh, I think they broke in maybe late last week, kind of broke into the city limits. We've got to ac- assume that in Severodonetsk, the Russians will take it because it's the essence of Luhansk for them. It's one of the two oblasts that they want. It's the smaller of the two. Uh, Donetsk is bigger, but they have to get Sverdonetsk if they're going to say that we've got Luhansk. Uh, they're now in control, last I saw, of about 60% uh, of the city. The mayor of Sverdonetsk said on Wednesday that Ukrainian forces only held about 20%. Another 20% was sort of no man's land on the, uh, you know, between the two armies, uh, which leaves the Russians with about 60%. That's probably changed uh, by today, but I haven't seen any f- estimates from anybody uh, in Ukraine as to what that, you know, what that looks like. But certainly the city is, is on the verge of being fully taken. I don't think there's much chance that the Russians are going to be driven back at this point. Um, that will leave them in control of everything east of the Donetsk River. Uh, they will probably attempt to cross the river and take the smaller city of Lysychansk or Lysychansk. I'm not sure if I'm, I'm, I'm probably butchering that pronunciation. I apologize. Perfect pronunciation. Um, no, no, they'll probably, probably be trying to cross the river. Now, river crossings are dangerous. You, you leave yourself vulnerable to artillery strikes. The Russians have tried crossing the Donetsk river a few times and, and, uh, have, it hasn't gone very well for them. Uh, but in this case, you know, when you're crossing from city to city, uh, it may be a bit easier for them to, to manage it. Um, and that will be, that's sort of the last, you know, populated area, uh, at all. It's a very, fairly small city or even town, I guess you could call it. Uh, that's the last populated area in Luhansk that, w- that is in Ukrainian hands at this point fully. Uh, so that would leave the Russians uh, in control of all of Luhansk Oblast uh, or the, you know, which will is effectively or will at that point effectively be uh, the Luhansk People's Republic. Uh, from there, I think they're going to look to take uh, the major cities remaining remaining in uh, Donetsk, uh, Oblast. Uh, so that's, you know, places like uh, Bakhmut, uh, Slovyansk, Kramatorsk. Again, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm probably not getting these pronunciations very well. But those are the major cities and, and major military hubs for the Ukrainians uh, left in, in the Donbass as a whole. So that's probably going to be the next target. Uh, and then we'll see. We'll see if the Russians can maintain this uh, what's been a very grinding, slow advance, a lot of artillery, uh, heavy casualties, at least on the Ukrainian side, you know, according to the Ukrainian government, uh, I would suspect heavy casualties on both sides. Um, that's a fight that for a while, I think the Russians can uh, probably sustain a little better than the Ukrainians. But once you start talking about, uh, you know, months from now, are they still going to be able to sustain this kind of offensive uh, and continue to push through eastern Ukraine? I don't know. Um, that's uh, that could be a pretty daunting task. 
does this suggest anything about Russian war aims, at least in terms of how Russia has been in pro- uh, approaching this conquest? Uh, does it seem like they're going to formally annex it well, or, or, or that they're going to create a client state? What do you think? So, the, I mean, the political aim is, is difficult to know. I, they're clearly intending, I think, to leave these regions as at least dependent statelets. Um, Russia has been, you know, despite, you know, its interventions in Georgia, uh, you know, 15 years ago, its intervention of 14, 15 years ago, uh, its intervention in 2014 in Ukraine to, you know, seize the um, Crimea, seize Crimea and to, to uh, establish the Donbass. Uh, as a basically de facto independent statelet. Um, they've been fairly selective about annexing, about going all the way to annexation. They've only annexed Crimea. Uh, but there have been signs that you know, we've talked about, I think we talked about last week in, in Kherson province, there's, uh, you know, there's been a move to introduce the ruble as legal currency. Um, there've been some other sort of political moves along those lines that suggest a long-term presence. But whether that means dependency or... Uh, outright annexation, I, I think it's hard to say at this point. Um, what it what it suggests in terms of the war is that they've figured out a way to make some progress. The the early kind of uh, quick strike attacks that were supposed to uh, take down major cities like Kiev and Kharkiv and uh, some of these other places didn't work. Uh, they then moved to a more kind of localized strategy in the Donbass, but one that was based on, I think, major troop movements and flanking operations and trying to surround the Ukrainian military. That didn't really work either. So now they're just using their superiority and weaponry and manpower localized uh, in particular areas like Severodonetsk and like some of these other places, um, you know, down the line to isolate particular parts of the Ukrainian military and just pulverize them. And that seems to be working. Again, I don't know how sustainable that is, especially, uh, you know, as I suspect we'll be talking about in a minute here, uh, with the influx of more and more advanced uh, Western weapon systems. Let's turn to that now. Let's talk about the, the new rocket launchers. So this is something Joe Biden, uh, it had been, you know, reported for some time that the U.S. was debating internally the uh, shipment of what are called multiple launch rocket systems uh, to Ukraine. These are the uh, the things that you see on TV that have like rocket launcher packs on the back. They look sort of like a tank or a truck uh, and they can fire like six rockets at a time or some can fire 12 rockets at a time. The concern has been uh, that if you equip uh, MLRS vehicles or, or weapons platforms with the right kind of missile, uh, those things can fire, you know, 500 miles away, basically. They can hit targets, theoretically at least, they can uh, come close to targets upwards of five miles away or 500 miles away, which puts areas fairly deep inside Russia, would put areas fairly deep inside Russia uh, in within Ukrainian reach, which, you know, there have been concerns that this could, this would probably be perceived as an escalation. It could bring, you know, bring everybody closer to a conflict between Russia and NATO, which is still the red line that everybody seems to be trying to avoid, an open conflict, I guess I should say. So the compromise, which Biden announced in a New York Times editorial on Tuesday, uh, is that the U.S. is sending four 
MLRS specifically, they're sending uh, what's called the High Mobility Artillery Rocket System, uh, which fires, carries one pod of six rockets, uh, so can fire up to six rockets or missiles at a time. Uh, but it's sending them uh, equipped with relatively short to medium range rockets. So we're talking about, you know, 40 to 50 miles maximum. Uh, I don't know specifically what rockets they're sending, but that's sort of the, uh, the where they would be at at the, at the maximum rather than some of these longer missile munitions that could fire into Russia. By some analysis, this is a potential game changer for Ukraine because these small launchers will more than double the current reach of Ukraine's weaponry. They've also been assured by the Ukrainians that, uh, you know, they won't uh, use these weapons to carry out attacks on Russian soil. I don't know how much stock to put in those assurances, but uh, physically it's going to be difficult to do anything. I mean, they could hit things along the border, but not much deeper than that if they wanted to to go that route. Uh, in addition to these HIMARS units, uh, they're, the administration is also sending this a new $700 million package. They're sending more howitzer ammunition, equipment, spare parts, helicopters, a couple of helicopters, um, radar equipment. So it's it's a, another big tranche of, uh, of weapons heading over. Uh, on top of that, Reuters reported, um, I think on Wednesday, that the administration was preparing to announce the sale of a handful of Gray Eagle drones to Ukraine. Now, these are very technologically advanced. They're the sort of the next generation of the Predator. Uh, they can be armed with Hellfire missiles. They would represent a significant upgrade technologically over the drones that Ukraine is currently using. They're getting some kamikaze drones from the U.S. Uh, they've been using Bayraktar uh, drones from Turkey, which are uh, substantially less expensive and less sophisticated. These are, are really kind of the, the top of the line for the U.S. So that will be interesting to see if they um, if they actually do this and, and what effect those units. They're not a lot of them, only four. But I think, um, you know, given the potential for them to make an impact on the battlefield, then that's going to lead to calls to sell them more drones. The revenue that this generates for defense contractors will further lead to lobbying efforts to get the U.S. government to sell more of these things to Ukraine. So I, I think this is just the beginning of maybe a, a, a larger um, change in, in armament. So at the beginning of this war... Uh, everyone was worried, who was at least critical of, of the U.S. getting involved in some way, about the United States flooding Ukraine with weapons. Would you say that's been happening, or would you say that that worry was overblown? No, it's definitely happening. Um, I mean, again, these these are only the beginning, I think. Once you break the, the dam on things like uh, an MLRS system or advanced drones, advanced combat drones, um, it becomes much easier to, to keep the, keep that flowing. Um, so I think you're going to see more of these things heading into Ukraine. Uh, Interpol just put out a, a statement or, uh, I haven't looked at the article yet, but there's something from Interpol today, uh, warning about the possibility of weapons from Ukraine kind of, you know, falling into, uh, the hands of organized crime or, you know, criminal networks in Europe. Uh, that's not I don't think you have to worry about like the Sicilian mafia getting hold of a multiple launch rocket system. But there are a lot of small arms and things that can't be tracked very well or at all uh, that have been sent into Ukraine that could easily be used by um, whatever, you know, uh, criminal networks, uh, terrorist networks, you know, you sort of name it. Th those things are 
still going to be there's they're still flooding Ukraine and they're still going to be kind of moving out of Ukraine uh, at some level and getting into the hands of groups that we would rather not have them. Uh, uh, you know, this has been a concern the whole time. I don't you know, it's a question of how much you care about that versus, you know, what you whatever you think the uh, the weapons are doing as far as the conflict is concerned. So it's sort of a balancing uh, thing, but but there's definitely a, a concern here that uh, I think legitimate concern uh, about weapons kind of you know meandering around Europe for, as a result of this this push to arm Ukraine. Speaking of war, uh, Derek, can you explain what's been going on with the Yemen ceasefire extension? So this is new today, Thursday, um, after what I had seen uh, earlier this week, which which was fairly pessimistic, uh, both from the, the UN and from the United States, a uh, pessimistic view of the talks on renewing uh, Yemen's two-month ceasefire, which was supposed to have expired uh, on Thursday, June, June 2nd. Uh, it turns out at sort of the last, like the 11th hour, really like, you know, 11.59 on the clock, uh, the two sides agreed to renew the ceasefire for another two months. This is some rare Good news from the American Prestige podcast. Uh, we don't do good news very very often, but this is definitely good news. Uh, I'm not sure what caused the two sides. Maybe it was just the deadline sort of staring them in the face and the prospect of a return to fighting that, that was unpleasant to, to en- envision. I don't know. I don't know what it was that caused them to uh, finally agree on the same terms as the the previous ceasefire. Uh, but this is this is good. The, the first ceasefire has not been entirely implemented. There have been some tense negotiations on parts of it, but this allows a a longer window, obviously, to to try and implement those things. And it it's establishes the ceasefire uh, in a way as the status quo now, and I think uh, may make it more difficult to contemplate returning to combat down the road. So you think this is a genuine hinge point in the course of the war? It could, it very well could be. I mean, uh, the longer, the more times you renew the uh, something like this, the more it just becomes sort of this is the way things are now. We're in this status, status quo. Kind of like not paying and, student loans. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Like, who's going to be the first president to, uh, is it going to be Lucky Joe who says, uh, sorry, you got to uh, start dream. <laughs> making payments. The interest rate's going to kick back in. Um, and it's it's very hard. It's, you know, it can be very hard to, to do that. Um, the first phase of the, I guess now first, uh, phase of the ceasefire uh, did achieve a number of things. For one thing, it largely held. There have been allegations of kind of isolated violations, but you get those in any ceasefire. Uh, for the most part, it has held in place. Um, the the rebels have, for example, not been sh- you know firing drones and missiles at uh, Saudi oil facilities or anything like that. They have uh, the the Saudi-led coalition, the pro-government coalition, has allowed a number of fuel ships to dock at the Hudeda seaport, which was uh, another one of the conditions. They've established commercial flights, limited commercial flights into and out of Sena'a. Uh, I think one flight, one round trip a week to Amman and Jordan and one round trip a week to Cairo. Um, so there, there's been progress. There's still some outstanding issues. The big one is uh, over the city of Taiz, which is Yemen's, I think, third largest city or was before the war. Uh, it's been essentially besieged by the rebels. The ceasefire calls for them to open the roads around Taiz to, to relieve that siege somewhat. They've been kind of uh, resisting that or, or dragging their feet on that. So that's been a source of some tension. 
but hopefully with another you know couple of months and now that the I, these regular kind of interactions uh negotiations are ongoing hopefully they'll be able to iron that out as well in which case uh you know it's hard to see what would be left in terms of uh, not keeping the ceasefire in place uh, barring any you know sudden major violation so why don't we turn to the final topic we're going to talk about today and that is a colombian election what happened Colombia's presidential election, the first round uh, on Sunday, went basically um, as expected, meaning nobody won 50 plus percent of the vote. So they're going to a runoff. Uh, the top two candidates are going to a runoff on June 19th. Uh, also, as expected, the leftist candidate, Gustavo Petro, uh, won the first round with a little over 40 percent of the vote. Uh, that was fairly consistent with what he had been polling at before the election. Uh, what's a surprise here, and I think should probably be viewed as uh, not a great, not great news for anybody who would like to see Petro win the the runoff, is that he's now going to be running against uh, a, a somewhat surprising second place finisher, uh, Rodolfo Hernandez, who is a businessman, uh, former mayor of a, a town called Bucaramanga. Uh, sorry, I'm butchering that probably too, uh, and a celebrity on social media. And if this reminds you of any uh, recently former U.S. presidents, that's probably fair. Every day they will come up with something that I am an Uribista, that I am a Petrista, or that I am neutral, that I am being investigated. But the truth is, my only allegiance is with the Colombian people. Most polling before the election had suggested that Federico Gutierrez, the former mayor of Medellin, would finish in second place. Uh, but he finished, I think, five points behind Hernandez. Hernandez finished with about 28% of the vote. Uh, Gutierrez was at about 23%. Uh, the outcome here, obviously, you have two fairly outside the mainstream candidates, which indicates that people are fed up with the mainstream. Gutierrez was sort of the system candidate. Uh, you know, he was the guy that was the the kind of political, uh, the candidate of the current political elite. Uh, and, you know, he obviously fell short of expectations. Uh, the reason why I think this is discouraging for Petro supporters, uh, well, there's a couple of reasons. One, polling of head-to-head matchups bet- again, between him and Hernandez uh, seems to put Hernandez somewhat in, in the driver's seat in terms of the runoff. The other reason is, of course, the center to right establishment, the folks who back Gutierrez are going to prefer uh, Hernandez, who I think uh, it should be noted once publicly expressed his admiration for Adolf Hitler. Uh, but nevertheless, they're going to prefer the kind of fascist friendly candidate to the leftist. And already, I mean, you know, when he found out he wasn't going to be in the runoff, Gutierrez almost immediately endorsed Hernandez and asked his, uh, his voters to su- support him. So I think Hernandez is probably a slight favorite at this point uh, to win the runoff and Colombia will lurch a country whose politics are already uh, sort of pitched to the right. I mean, they've never really had a leftist president. Petro would be the first. Uh, I think, you know, more likely to lurch further to the right because that's where the center of gravity is. Well, on that happy note, Derek, yeah, thank you as I, always. I had to bring us down from the Yemen thing. We have to end on that. <laughs> yeah, we, we go from highs to lows. We're, we're very up and down here. Uh, Derek, thank you as always. Uh, and everyone, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with Derek Davison, and we are very excited to welcome back to our show Alexander Avina. Uh, Alex is an associate professor of history at Arizona State University, and he is also the author of Specters of Revolution, Peasant Guerrillas in the Cold War Mexican Countryside. And this is actually uh, the book that we're going to discuss today. We've had Alex on the past to talk about Mexican history generally, but we wanted to really dig into his book. So, Alex, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, guys. It's a pleasure to be back again. Um, so the book focuses on peasant resistance in Guerrero, um, which is uh, a Mexican state that we oftentimes don't talk about, at least in the United States, and at least <laughs> according to my knowledge. So, um, Alex, maybe before we even get into the subject of your book, you could talk about Guerrero in the longer term sweep of uh, a Mexican history. Where is it located in Mexico? What is its political culture? How does it relate to the Mexican state? Uh, as these are the focuses of your book, but I was wondering if we could talk about them from a deeper historical perspective. Yeah, sure. So people may have heard about this state in Mexico on the southwestern Pacific coast because of its world-famous resort city of Acapulco. Um, one of the one of the contentions I think uh, that I make as a historian of Mexico in general is that Guerrero occupies a central place in the very in the very history of Mexico, like to to the extent that there's no Mexico without Guerrero. Usually Guerrero is both historically, politically, and even culturally treated as some sort of like hinterlands within the country of Mexico. It has, it occupies a very interesting location as being this like ungovernable, violent place where its people are always fighting. Even, even in my own household growing up, I remember my dad one time telling me, look, you, you never want to mess with someone from Guerrero because there they fight with machetes. So it occupies this, or, or it, there's also a, a, an American newspaper article uh, from the 70s that, that tries to describe these guerrilla movements to an American audience. And the way they, 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 they put it is, imagine the Appalachian Mountains with the weather underground, um, So, which is kind of an interesting way to try to convey that sort of understanding to an American audience in the 70s. Guerrero has, it doesn't be officially become a state within the country of Mexico until the mid-19th century, but it has a central place even within the, the colonial history of Mexico. Like there was a, after the, the Spanish conquered uh, the Philippines, there was uh, in, in the, the mid to late 1500s, there was a yearly uh, Manila, Manila galleon that would traverse the Pacific and really interconnected Acapulco into the broader uh, Pacific world, into the, into the Asian economy, right? So Guerrero's always had a, a very important place within New Spain, which was the colonial designation for Mexico. And then once we get the independence of Mexico, you know, many of its most important independence leaders came from this, the region that we now call Guerrero. Uh, it's many of its, a good number of its founding fathers. When the independence effort looks like it was lost to the Spanish, uh, that the guerrilla movement, uh, main, stayed alive in the state of Guerrero. Now, you know, in the, into the 20th century, it's generally seen as one of the three most impoverished states in, in, in Mexico. It's one of the most indigenous states in Mexico. It's remembered. It's known for having uh, a very distinctive, you know, Pacific Pacific Coast communities that include uh, large numbers of, of Afro Mexicans um, that are in in recent years have become much more visible. Fortunately, p- politically, phys- uh, culturally, and socially within Mexico. Uh, but so in general, it's seen as this 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 backwards uh, hinterlands. Uh, uh, I'm not going to name names, but a, a famous historian of Mexico recently referred to it as like the the Chechnya Mexico, and I. I remember just cringing when I heard that. Um, 
Because that anyway, we don't have to get into that. But so it, it occupies that, that, that kind of so many different ways. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, I know. It was like it was the Chechnya or Kurdistan of Mexico, and I was like, oh, why, why, yeah, why? Just... Um, um, and even one of my, I think my very first publication when I was still a grad student, it was in this edited volume, and and another famous historian's introduction to the volume refers to Guerrero as just like a backwoods area, and I'm like, oh, cool, thanks for the setup, man. Um, so that's generally how it's seen now from a, from a, you know, from the post-revolutionary Mexican state perspective, they also kind of adopt this idea toward, toward Guerrero as this like ungovernable place in Mexico. It's known as Guerrero Bronco, like this, just ungovernable place. It's highly rural. Uh, Acapulco really doesn't become a world, you know, it, it becomes developed as a world-class city after World War II. It's got several important, you know, it's an agricultural state, so it is producing important commodities, uh, especially after the, the Mexican revolution in the thirties and forties. Um, so, but it's still always seen as, as, as a place that is beyond, uh, state authority, state, central state authority. It made complicated by the fact that the massive mountain ranges traverse the state as well. Um, so on the one hand, it's seen as, as ungovernable. On the other hand, it's seen as this dangerous place, uh, continuously occupied by either bandits uh, at its worst or at its best, it's seen as like, you know, a place where uh, in a romanticized way as, 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 a, as, a, as a place where rebels and revolutionaries are always being formed and coming out to contest both local power, but also central state power. So one of the major themes of your book concerns the relationship of the guerrilla movements of the 60s to the Mexican Revolution. Um, so we actually had already talked on the show about the Mexican Revolution a bit, but, but what do you... I want to talk a little bit about historical memory, and particularly the memory of people like Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata and uh, Ricardo Flores Magón, and sort of the role that the peasant guerrilla played in Mexican history, uh, and, and uh, particularly as it relates to your work. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that and the role of the peasants in the Mexican Revolution and um, how Guerrero fits into that, how it doesn't, historical memory, all that good stuff. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. A Guerrero has this, again, to, to go back to my previous comment, it has a central place within uh, also like the revolutionary imaginary within the various Mexican lefts that emerged throughout throughout the 20th century, especially after the Mexican Revolution, right? So, but because Mexico is primarily an agricultural rural country well into the probably 1960s or, uh, you know, resistance to central political authority is going to come from the countryside. And you, since, since the independence wars of the 1810s, you have these traditions of rebellion that are formed. Um, and, and a lot of them are actually centralized in this particular region that, that, that my book focuses on. So, when we get to the Mexican Revolution of 1910, Guerrero actually becomes only the second state to at one point have a governor or a ruler that considers himself to be a Zapatista, a follower of the great revolutionary from the state of Morelos, Emiliano Zapata. Um, but the state itself is kind of like a different conglomeration of, of, of warring radical liberal factions. Um, and in the end, I think kind of the way that the revolution gets resolved in, in Guerrero kind of foreshadows what's going to happen to the entire revolutionary project after 1910, it's, it's the, the more moderate and the liberal factions, um, that, that went out and the more radical factions are defeated militarily on the battleground. But their ideas continue to, to, to exist. And their ideas that deal with, um, uh, a, a very radical direct form of democracy that extends into, you know, not just in the political realm, but also in the social and in the everyday realms is what's really motivating a lot of these peasant revolutionaries. That goes back to the 1810s, the independence struggles, and these ideas are going to continue, as I argue in the book, 
well into the 1960s and 70s. It's a very, it's a radical definition of people's power backed up by arms. Um, and when, and if they resist any sort of authoritarianism, whether it's local despotism or whether it's despotism coming from Mexico City, there's a tradition already created that they will go up into the mountains and organize some sort of rebellion to challenge uh, what they identify as authoritarianism. Guerrero also, one of the interesting things from, suggests about 1910, it, Acapulco itself in the city of Acapulco in the, in the late 1910s, 1919, they elect a man by the name of Juan Escudero, who, who I think gets a really cool nickname. He's remembered as a Lenin of Acapulco. And, and while he's a mayor of Acapulco, he does a lot to organize both estevedores or dock workers within Acapulco and trying to interface them with radical peasant movements that are on the outskirts of Acapulco. And you have this interesting, uh, uh, interface that occurs between workers, um, textile workers, dock workers, and then these radical agrarian peasant movements on the outskirts of Acapulco. And, and th this combination will continue to exist well into the twenties, thirties, forties. And, and a lot of the older generations in, will transmit these radical ideas to younger generations that, that start to think about um, revolution uh, by, by the late 1960s, as I kind of trace in, in my book. So there's certain figures like Emiliano Zapata, Ricardo Flores Magón, who they, they remain very alive and well in the memories of these different peasant movements that continue to organize, that continue to to mobilize in the aftermath of the, of the 1910 Mexican revolution, even after 1940, when the post-revolutionary state starts to assume a more conservative, more pro-capitalist approach uh, and adopting a very uh, uh, capitalist modernization program that will essentially relegate the countryside to the role of, 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 of subsidizer of industrialization. But these ideas represented by Zapata, these ideas represented by Magón, by Escudero, the Lenin of Acapulco, these ideas about direct democracy, uh, about some some uh, vaguely defined notion of socialism will continue to subsist, and one of those one of the places where these ideas will be cultivated and will continue to spread and reproduce are in these rural teacher training schools, and, and the most famous of which is in the state of Guerrero uh, in Ayotzinapa, which because of what happened in 2014 has has become you know, globally famous or infamous depending on how you view it, right? With when the disappearance of the 43 students who were be who belonged to the school, um, so all these all these all these social movement leaders and activists who emerged beginning in the late 50s and early 60s, many of them, most importantly, the leaders, came from this school. Um, and they came from a very radical milieu that was forming both students and teachers. So another thing before, again, we get to the subject of the book is the role of Lazaro Cardenas and, and sort of his particular role in, in the Mexican imagination and um, sort of keeping... Um, I think as you describe it in the book, keeping the promises of revolution in some sense. So could you maybe talk about him for a bit and then we'll get into the, the meat of the book? Yeah, so Lázaro Cárdenas, who's from, I would say, the, the best state in Mexico, Michoacán. Of course, I say this as an unbiased uh, son of Michoacano parents. He was an active participant in the Mexican Revolution of 1910. He becomes a governor of Michoacán in the 1920s. Eventually, he becomes president of Mexico in the 1930s, and he's remembered as the guy, as a, as a, as a left populist, who finally fulfills the, the radical precepts of the 1917 Constitution that emerged, emerged from the Mexican Revolution. He's seen as the guy who actually implemented widespread agrarian reform efforts throughout the country. He's the guy who's seen as organizing radical uh, experiments in agricultural organization. He's the guy seen as you know, remembered for his March 1938 expropriation of, of Mexican oil and Mexican oil gets nationalized and it remains patrimony of the nation up until 2013, 2014. 
And he's also a member for, for implementing uh, public secular education or socialist education throughout the countryside. And in Guerrero, he's remembered quite, was remembered quite fondly for being the guy who brought the Mexican Revolution to the everyday lives of peasant communities. He made the Mexican Revolution something tangible on a quotidian level. People got land, people got schools, and they got the promise of a Mexico that was going to be radically different from the one that existed prior to the Mexican Revolution, which was an export-oriented, highly exploitative capitalist economy overseen by a highly authoritarian ruler like, like Porfirio Diaz. Now, this, this generated, in a place like Guerrero, uh, Lázaro Cárdenas' tenure and all these promises unleashed uh, just years of, of low in, essentially low-intensity class warfare, as I think Carr referred to it in the book. Um, just because the national government is saying, okay, peasants, you're allowed to petition the government for ejidos or for collective landholding agreements, doesn't mean that local elites on the ground are actually going to follow that law. So throughout the 1930s, you see a lot of violence between agrarianist uh, peasant movements and communities versus local landed elites who refuse to give up their economic and political power. And, and dozens of, of agrarian leaders are killed. Dozens of, of campesinos, radical campesinos or, or peasants are killed. But these peasant movements still feel like they have someone on their side in the highest office, uh, political office in the country. And he's remembered for that. He's remembered quite fondly. Obviously, historians and uh, remember him differently. Historiographically, the story is a bit more complex. But the, in memory, the, the, the type of memory that I encounter talking to people or doing research in, in documents and in oral histories, he's seen as like the one good president who made manifest the promises of the Mexican Revolution. Once he leaves office, these promises are, are betrayed. And the struggle, the struggle will continue then to, to make those uh, promises manifest. So why don't we now get into to the book? And one of the arguments that your book makes is that the outbreak of these resistance movements in the 50s and the 60s is in, is in direct response to elite violence, which you already gestured toward. But maybe you could talk about the run-up to the outbreak of the revolution and what made ordinary school teachers pick up arms against the state, because that's such a radical move and that's such a move in some sense of desperation that I imagine the violence must have been pretty brutal to engender such a reaction. Yeah, so I... I one of the things that, that motivated me to even try to do this, this research uh, that began as a, as a dissertation in, in grad school was to write against this idea that not just the Guerrero's guerrilla movements in the 60s and the 70s, but generally most of them in Latin America were somehow derivative of the Cuban example, or they were just all Cuban proxies who were sent throughout Latin America to wage a uh, hopeless revolution against you know, well-established uh, governments. Um, I really wanted to show you know, kind of like the local roots of this armed struggle that developed in Guerrero in the 60s and 70s, led by communist school teachers, um, both the long historical roots, but then also how those roots and those ideas and those memories interface with a new world, right? A new world that is unleashed by the Cuban revolution of 1959, and also more national dynamics in Mexico. Mexico experiences a massive strike wave in the late 50s. Uh, teachers, railway workers, miners lead a series of, of nationwide strikes, which then leads the, the Mexican government led by the, the ruling PRI leads them to uh, use the army to, to crack down on movements that were simply demanding political democracy and, 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 and economistic demands. So that's the national scope of it as well. There's also the, the revival of, uh, or the emergence of a new left in the new, in the early 1960s, a cultural new left, a political new left that's, that's really fueled by the example of Cuba. Um, not not tactically right, but just the idea that that something better could be created. And there's really interesting dialogues going on between Cubans and Mexicans in which, especially in 1959, 1960, where 
Mexicans like Lázaro Cárdenas, who, who goes back onto the public national stage after having left it once he left the presidency in 1940, he'll start to say things like the Cuban revolution is, is exactly like the Mexican revolution, just like for, you know, a couple decades later. Obviously, that's going to change after 1961 and, and the failed Bay of Pigs invasion. Um, but there is like in the early 60s nationally, there's a, there's, there's a, a, a political effervescence, right? Even the president of Mexico in the late 50s, early 60s, he's describing himself as an extreme leftist within the Mexican constitution. That's how he described himself. So it's a, as he's like unleashing just massive amounts of crackdown against minors, school teachers, um, and, and, and other worker movements in the late 50s and early 60s. Locally, what really unleashes, I would say, like two decades of, of political mobilization that culminates in armed struggle is a really particularly nepotistic, brutal, corrupt governor, a former general um, who's appointed to the governorship of Guerrero in the late 50s, he puts a bunch of his close relatives in positions of prominence, and, and he, he starts to do a couple of things that will f- result in the coalescing of a multi-class civic movement that seeks his, his removal. He starts to, on the one hand, wage this kind of like war on crime, depistolization campaign, where he tries to disarm uh, peasants from their weapons. And at the same time, he just crack, he cracks down on any sort of political mobilization or protest. So there's one journalist from Acapulco who has to leave the state in the late 50s, and he publishes an article that says, look, like this guy has killed hundreds of people during his governorship just because they protested his way of ruling um, and, and protesting his, his nepotism. So by 1959, 1960, you see the, the emergence of a, of a widespread multi-class movement whose sole goal is the removal of this government, this governor. And it's a really, it's a heterogeneous movement and includes, uh, you know, the, the Lucio Cabañas and Genaro Vasquez, these two school, communist school teachers who will later become guerrilla leaders. It has dissident members of the PRI who join the movement. It's a very local movement. Um, and, and what I argue in the book is that this, this movement becomes kind of like a school or a laboratory of social activism on the one hand. It teaches many guerrerenses how to protest and how to wage uh, dissidents against authoritarianism. But on the other hand, it also results in escalating levels of, of official or state violence and trying to repress this rapidly growing movement. And it, this culminates in, in, a, in a massacre at the end of 1960. In the capital city of Chilpancingo in Guerrero, uh, the military massacres, you know, like two dozen or more protesters uh, who were trying to seek the removal of this governor. That finally compels the Mexican federal Senate to act. And under Mexican law, the, the Senate is the one that has the, the power to remove uh, a governor. Um, and that's, it, it, it's in this movement where you start to see kind of the, the networks and the individuals and the ideas that will then, you know, years later, develop into two separate peasant guerrilla movements that will emerge in the state, uh, led by these two communist school teachers, Lucio Cabañas and, and Genaro Vasquez. And one of the things that I try to show in the book is that, like, these movements try to work within the system set forth by, uh, the, the 1917 constitution. And each time that they try to do, uh, try to adopt a different modality, which, whether it's popular protests on the streets, whether it's running an opposition political party that tries to displace the PRI, which they did in 62, 63, at each, at each instance, they're met by an escalating level of state violence, whether it's local gunslingers related to, you know, local po- uh, police officers or land elites, or whether it's the Mexican federal army. And that eventually will convince uh, a number of individuals and social organizations that, look, the only way we're going to be able to get any sort of radical change is through the gun. Um, and b- by the late sixties, within a global context, which this seems to be the message, right? That revolutionary change seems possible via armed struggle, that also influences the emergence of these two movements uh, by 1967, 1968.
Before, I, I do want to get into the two movements you talked about, but how does the rest of the Mexican, um, what, what does the rest of Mexico think about the, these various things that are happening in Guerrero? Is it seen as something that happens over there? Is it seen that something says something about Mexican power in the Mexican state? Like, how are the elites in Mexico City thinking about this? They're seen there. I mean, I think you described it perfectly with the first instance. Uh, it's seen as something that's happening over there. And it's actually not just in Guerrero. In the six, early 60s, there's, a, there's several states where the governors are misbehaving that force the, the Senate to act and, and to seek the removal of these, of these governors. It's seen, all, it's seen in a way like, let's resolve this issue quickly by removing the figure that's causing all the consternation and, and, and the protests, and then let local elites kind of reconfigure political power. Because in the end, that's really how the PRI works. Right? It's, it's, it's a centralized bureaucracy and system, but it's highly dependent on local actors and agents and cliques to take their power to the, to the countryside, to the local level. And in some instances, these local elites will clash with the federal level pre and other instances, they will work together. Um, and so, so the way they react is let's get rid of this governor and that's going to solve the situation. Um, but by the time we get into the mid 1960s and, and late 60s, the solution seems to be pouring in more troops, more police, uh, and start essentially to wage a low intensity warfare against peasant communities who are supportive of radical movements under the guise of anti crime campaigns. And eventually, by the late 60s, uh, as, as part of like drug interdiction campaigns, right? So these, these counterinsurgencies will be described as counter narcotics to, to the Mexican public at large. Um, so, the dynamic here is that I see is this escalating spiral of violence uh, and, and that uh, it's not just radicalizing these groups that will become, you know, guerrilla movements seeking the overthrow of the Mexican state. But I think it's also radicalizing members within the Mexican state, within the PRI, to take a more heavy handed approach to deal with these movements, um, to just to use the, essentially to use the stick as a way to just uh, get rid of these movements without addressing some of the deeper structural factors that are causing them to emerge in the first place. So, Alex, one of the questions that I have is, is uh, how does the development of Acapulco as a, you know, shishi, swanky tourist destination uh, play into these dynamics? You, you talked a little bit about sort of the early part of the century. There's this effort to bring together rural groups and sort of the, you know, the dock workers and the other kind of laborers uh, in Acapulco and get them on the same page. But then we get into the 1950s and all of a sudden this kind of nascent tourism industry becomes huge. All the Hollywood people are vacationing in Acapulco and Elvis makes a movie about Acapulco and it becomes like this big tourist destination. And it seems like uh, you get an effort on the part of the Mexican government in particular to sort of shield the international interests that are producing this tourist boom or supporting this tourist boom uh, while, you know, treating the population of both Acapulco and then the surrounding state, Guerrero State, uh, you know, raising taxes, doing, you know, all sorts of things to kind of, uh, uh, th that would kind of uh, set people off. So can you talk a little bit about the development of Acapulco in this way and, and what, what that did to the, the dynamics that you've been, you know, discussing in terms of the, the I, don't, I hesitate to call it hinterlands, but the, the, the areas, the kind of rural areas around that city? Yeah, that's a great question. The development of Acapulco into a tour tourist resort 
zone uh, really begins in the 1940s. And it almost begins as a, as a personal project of, of, of President Miguel Aleman, who um, the main thoroughfare that goes through Acapulco on the coast is, is La Costera is named after him. Um, so he's in the, in the forties, he's the one really pushing the development of Acapulco as, as an international tourist zone, which will require the expropriation of, of peasant lands, right? To create this burgeoning Acapulco was a small city before this development, a small a town, um, despite its long historical connections with the Pacific world, and the Pacific economy going to colonial times. It's after the 1940s where it starts to grow, I guess, through this combined and uneven development model, to use that term. But it, 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 a lot of it depends on expropriating peasant ejido lands to allow it to grow um, in, and to convert uh, coastline into tourist-friendly uh, beach resort zones. And to this day, if you go to Acapulco, Acapulco is divided into two zones. There's like the national tourist zone. That's like the old Acapulco where you can go and see the cliff divers who go into, you know, dive off of these cliffs into the ocean. And then you have the international tourist zone, which is these swankier hotels, uh, Copacabana Beach, which was developed on top of essentially pits where uh, dissidents were thrown, killed and thrown into, but which is a horrific story. So it literally, like, uh, the development of Acapulco is on top of expropriated peasant lands. And in some instances, these beaches are built on top of the bones of dissidents and people who rebelled against this type of development. Um, and, and there's some really crazy ar- newspaper articles from the late 70s and early 80s that testify to, to the development of this particular beach, uh, Copacabana Beach. So as you have the growth of this, of this city, it becomes a, a pole of attraction for, for peasant communities throughout the coast, right? It becomes one of these like few beyond agriculture and, and a small mining sector in, in Tasco, which is another part of the state. Um, it becomes one of the few like economic productive areas where people can, if people who are interested in leaving the agricultural sector can come to the city and, and work in the service economy, ex- essentially. And that then will result in shanty towns and, and, and the emergence of unplanned communities being built on the outskirts of the city, on hills. And it really, when we get to the guerrilla movements, but this also happens in the 60s and, the, and these other type of political mobilizations, organizations, activists will go in there and organize in these shanty towns. Um, but the PRI also will go in there and organize. And there's this, there's this weird instance of, of one guy who's re- remembered as King Lopitos, who essentially was this really strange strong man who controlled one of the one of the biggest uh shantytown areas that had emerged after the 1950s and he could deliver votes to the PRI reliably until he's assassinated in really uh, murky circumstances i think in the late 60s um so one of the things that these political activists nonviolent political activists will do in the early 60s and then something that especially the party of the poor will do led by Lucio Cabañas that they will go into these working class neighborhoods and shanty towns and try to implant like cells, like political cells, uh, create cadres. And that will be kind of like the 1960s or 70s version of, of what Juan Escudero tried to do in 1919, 1920, the Lenin of Acapulco. Um, it was these shanty town working class impromptu neighborhoods that were created, um, as a consequence of, of, of developing Acapulco into a tourist zone. That would become the, 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 the nexus between the, the gorillas up in the mountains and, and peasant communities in the lowlands on the coast with these neighborhoods. And they would work together to, to, to create a struggle that wasn't just rural, but it was also urban, um, in, in the way that, that the gorillas were, were expecting it. And even social activists before in the, in the earlier movements, uh, they viewed these shanty towns and these working class neighborhoods as a, as a potentially rich area of, of support. And, and, and they would, a lot of the people who went in there and organized 
in the early 60s would become really important by the time we get to the guerrilla movements of the late 60s and early 70s. So let's get in now to the meat of the book. <laughs> We've spent a half hour sort of building up to it, but there were two major groups, uh, Alex, that, that you referenced. One is the National Revolutionary Civil Association, otherwise known as the ACNR. And the other one is the Party of the Poor, the PDLP. And they are led by two men, one named Lucio Cabanas and the other uh, named uh, G- Gennaro Vasquez. So maybe you could talk about who were these people. Um, they were school teachers. <laughs> uh, and, and how did they go about forming this group? And maybe it's something that is also interesting, especially given Ayotzinapa, is sort of the role of like rural educators in peasant guerrilla movements, which is, uh, I think, a phenomenon, correct me if I'm wrong, you see throughout Latin America broadly. So maybe you could relate sort of their experiences to broader trends if there's a way. And if not, just tell us about uh, who these people were and how they started the groups and why they're important, what are their ideas etc. Yeah, I think the, our conversation is following the structure of my dissertation where it's like, let me start this in 1750. And it's a book right. about the 1960s, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's a typical historian thing to do. Um, all right, let's get into it. So yeah, so the, the two figures that emerge in, in the book are, are Genaro Vasquez, who's the leader of the ACNR, and Lucio Cabañas, who's the leader of the PDLP. And they're Genaro Vasquez is a little older. His, his political trajectory is a little different. He actually studied to be a teacher in Mexico City, even so, even though he's from Guerrero, and he always maintained links with with pe- his peasant community in the southern coast of Guerrero and, and with different organizations, he was formed as a political as a school teacher in the National Teacher Training School in Mexico City. And, and something that his his wife his, his his wife told me, and also his second in command told me, who I, I was fortunate enough to interview for the book, is that they were all part they were all at the school in Mexico City. Uh, some of their teachers were Spanish Republican exiles. Um, and I, I thought that was super interesting, right? So Mexico, thanks to Lázaro Cárdenas, they accepted like almost 40,000 Spanish Republican exiles who fled Spain after uh, Francisco Franco's victory. And they, they, they talk about how their radicalization really started with some of these Spanish Republican exile teachers. So more broadly within Mexican cultural life of the post-1940 era, these Spanish Republican exiles play like a really outsized role. Um, but as educators, uh, they were extremely important for Genaro Vázquez and his small circle of of comrades who eventually become like the nucleus of his, of, of his guerrilla group by the late 1960s. And he will become involved in those, those, those worker movements that I talked about earlier in the 1950s. He will try to form like an independent teachers union that will go against the PRI controlled teachers union. Um, but really his political formation really it's, it's in Mexico city. Lucio Cabañas is a little younger. Um, he's from a different part of Guerrero from the up the North coast, as opposed to the South coast. Um, and he talked about how, his great uncles had fought with Zapatista forces during the Mexican revolution, right? So for him, the idea of Zapata and Zapatismo of this, this radical agrarian peaven movement that believed in, a, in, a, in an armed version of direct democracy that, that filtrated into all aspects of existence captivated his, his, his political development, which really takes off when he joins the rural teacher training school in Ayotzinapa. And if you go to Ayotzinapa now, their, their artwork on the walls, it's all Genaro Vasquez, Lucio Cabanas, Che Guevara, and Karl Marx. Um, it's a really interesting place to go to. Um, and he says he was born politically in Ayotzinapa. And while he was in Ayotzinapa training to be a, a rural, a rural teacher, you know, these rural teacher training schools were designed in the twenties and thirties to only for the, the sons and daughters of, of peasants, of campesinos. And the idea was, you know, we're going to, we're going to spread secular or socialist education in the countryside by training the sons and daughters of campesinos themselves and then let them become teachers. And they will go to these far off places to teach peasant children like them. Um, 
And, and Cabañas talks about how in, in 1958, 1959, 1960, him and his comrades became involved in very local struggles over, you know, th things like whether it's police violence or eventually the movement against this nepotistic governor that I described earlier. But they had shortwave radios and they started picking up Radio, um, Radio Rebelde from Cuba. Um, and, and it's really interesting in his, we have the, we have his diaries because the Mexican military captured his diaries in one of these raids. Um, and, he, and in these diaries, he talks about, um, how Cuba, uh, really like, just cap captivated their, their political imagination in terms of what was possible. Again, not just, not tactically, but more the idea that, that revolution could be accomplished or change could be a, a, accomplished through direct action. And, and historically, these, these, te these rural teacher training schools and rural school teachers in general, Estan Alice Padilla just published a, a great book on this. Um, in these co peasant communities, these teachers were like organic intellectuals. And in some instances, they were the, the most literate or the only literate people in the community. So they had a certain authority and, and, and local campesinos could come to them and ask them for help in drafting a letter, drafting a position, helping them read letters that they were receiving. Not all school teachers were, were, you know, revolutionaries fighting for the people. Some, some, you know, went the other direction and became local uh, caciques, these local bosses in charge of everything from, you know, bars to political office. But nonetheless, they, they, they gave people like Lucio Cabañas and Genaro Vasquez, like gave, were interlocutors between, uh, different, you know, political ideologies, ideas, and sympathies that emerge in the countryside. So in a way, I think I mentioned in the book, I consider Lucio Cabañas and Genaro Vasquez to be translators of a sort. They're translating their own more uh, structured political formation. Lucio Cabañas will eventually form, form part of the Mexican Communist Party. Genaro Vasquez will always be a dissident Marxist. He will never join the, the Mexican Communist Party. He actually was very negative toward it. But they will be really good translators in, in conveying some of these ideas to peasant communities but then also receiving feedback from these peasant communities and turning this into something new. And that's really the role that school teachers have had in Mexican history in the 20th century. They're, they're these, they're, they're, they're like the uh, stereotypical organic intellectual to go off the, in, in a Gramsci sense. You use the term in the book, I believe, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and it's the, the other interesting thing is as someone who teaches is the way that they teach is really interesting as well, especially someone like Lucio Cabañas who taught mostly in the countryside. And Arawaska is taught mostly in the city, in Mexico City, um, a very like dialogical way of, of conversing and, and, and approaching their students that then becomes their political methodology when they're trying to recruit people and trying to create these armed revolutionary organizations. It, it, so it's really interesting, especially someone like Lucio Cabañas, who's, who, who, who has a lot of knowledge of Marxism, who's a member of the Mexican Communist Party, how he receives peasant ideas and translates it is, is one of the things that that fascinates me the most, right? And it's one of the things that really led me into thinking about how these movements were different um, and much more creative and much more original than just some sort of derivative of, of, of a broader 1960s Cuban-inspired revolutionary movement. So why don't you go into some of the details about it? So what maybe is the traditional story that that is told um, about Cuba and its revolution? And then how did what you discover in your research complicate that story and sort of, it sounds like, even open up a new path for thinking about revolutionary peasant movements of the 50s and the 60s. Yeah, I think, in general, for, for a while, right, and this is not to deny, I'll start it by saying this way, I, this is not to deny that, that, that revolutionary Cuba, Cuba had no role in supporting or, or being engaged in some uh, guerrilla movements in Latin America, particularly in the, in the early 1960s. Like they, there was some of that, right? There was, there was a lot of uh, conversation and relationship between some of these movements in Central America and the, particularly the North Coast of, 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 
South America with, with Cuba. But for, for a while, the scholarship, in particular about Mexican guerrillas, one, the scholarship was completely silent, right? And this has to do with the idea that Mexico is usually traded, is treated as like a Cold War exceptionalism, right? Like the rest of Latin America, with the exception of Mexico and Venezuela, went full dictatorship. Um, but you had these two imperfect democracies like Venezuela on the one hand and Mexico on the other that survived somehow the revolutionary fervor of the 1960s, 1970s. So to begin with Mexican guerrilla movements in the 60s and 70s, even though there was more than 30 of them, they, it's only recently that people have really, particularly English language uh, historiography, have really started to like dive into some of these movements and trying to understand them on their own terms. And when we do that, which is what I tried to do with these two movements, you, you find that there is some inspiration from Cuba. There is some inspiration from what Vietnam is doing. You know, there's part of the glo- the idea of the global 1960s, right? There is, you know, multiple facets of political inspiration. But what I also show about the ACNR and the PDLP is that they're also very locally rooted and they're inspired by alternative readings of Mexican history. So what they'll say is the Mexico that we remember, the Mexico that we're fighting for was the betrayed Mexico. It was the radical independence movement that was defeated militarily. It was the movements of Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata that were fighting for, but they were betrayed and defeated and, and, and they were betrayed. And, and we're trying to redeem past revolutionary efforts. We're trying to reactivate past revolutionary efforts. And, and these more localized definitions of, of, of revolution will become mixed with what's going on globally. And to me, that produces something new. It's much more complicated than just to say, well, they're trying to do what the Cubans did. They're trying to do some Che Guevara-inspired focal theory approach to implementing a revolutionary movement in, in Guerrero. For me, it was like, these people have been doing this since like the 1810s. They didn't need much in, in, in way of lessons. The, the, the task is to understand how the past and the, and the 1960s present kind of mixed together to produce a, a highly original revolutionary project. What do you think is responsible? Because to me, that reads like a bit of a fetishization of Cuba, particularly amongst American intellectuals. Um, so why do you think that is? Why were these movements overlooked for so long, especially given, I mean, the U.S. has a close relationship with Cuba historically, but I would say it has as close, if not closer relationship with Mexico. So what do you think explains that sort of historiographical trend? It's interesting that it would be sort of ignored a little bit until you, you know, recovered it in a sense for English language scholarship? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. It's, uh, I will resist that Porfirio Diaz <laughs> quote about Mexico. And the, I, we're not allowed, Mexican historians in the U.S., we're not allowed <laughs> to use that quote anymore. Look, I think this has to do with Mexico's unique place within Cold War Latin America, which was the other like impulse that led me to want to do this, this, this project, right? Like to go back to what I was saying earlier, there's a certain exceptionalism that was applied to Mexico. If you look at like what the U.S. social scientists were writing about Mexico in the 60s and 70s, it was like, this is the preferred way of doing a revolution. It's like non-communist. It's non-Marxist. It's definitely anti-Bolshevik. Eh, we recognize that they're authoritarian, but this is the best way to, to ensure capitalist development and political stability, which is what the U.S. is really was interested. It continues to be interested in with regards to Mexico. Um, so that and the fact that Mexico had had a successful revolution in 1910, right? It gave the post-revolutionary government this image that they were already revolutionary to begin with. Like, why, how could you have revolutionaries going against the revolutionary government? And the president, Luis Echeverria, was the, the most... party effective. name. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, they, they trademarked... Yeah, it, the, and it, the Mexican flag is in the party name, right? So, so if you're going to be a revolutionary like Nuestro Cabañas and General Vasquez, you're going against Mexican national identity and Mexican history of revolution. 
Um, but by the time we get to the 70s, someone like President Luis Echeverria, who globally is still to this day remembered as kind of like a leftist progressive, right? This is where like Christy Thornton's book is, is fascinating because Echeverria occupies a certain place globally and within Latin America as a progressive, as a leftist. Mexico is accepting exiles from Chile, from Argentina, from Uruguay, when military dictatorships take over those countries. And that really bur- helps burnish the revolutionary credentials of Mexico. While internally they're doing horrific things like the things that I describe in, in the book, right? Which is waging these brutal counterinsurgencies in a place like Guerrero that really looks like what, you know, governments or death squad regimes are doing in Central America and, and at the same time in the 1970s and early 80s. So Mexico essentially is a long winded way of saying Mexico has a certain cover and that cover is provided by its relationship to the U.S., but also by its relationship to history, particularly 1910. Um, but, you know, historians like Christy Thornton, like Renata Keller have really gone into, you know, it, 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 well, Christy talks about more about the global situation. Um, and we've had some really cool conversations about it's pushed me away from just like, in my mind, Lisa Cheverria is still like Henry Kissinger, but she's like reading her brilliant book has led me to, to consider more the local and the global and, and how the global really allowed someone like Echeverria to wage brutal counterinsurgency in Mexico. But then secret, you know, see, previously secret, now declassified documents that someone like Renata Keller uh, looks at show like, you know, Lisa Echeverria going to Richard Nixon and being like, hey, if you guys don't support us, uh, Fidel Castro is going to be the spokesperson for Latin America when I should be the spokesperson for Latin America because you want me to be the leader of the region, not this fire-breathing communist. So secretly, the U.S. and, and Mexico were extremely close. Uh, their leadership, at least, that uh, they had more or less shared goals. Sometimes they had falling outs, particularly over drug policy in the 70s, immigration policy as well. Um, but they were more or less working together secretly, even as Echeverria is at the UN, you know, being very bombastic about a new international economic order and, and about creating something new for global South nations. And all that gave a lot of cover to what the Mexican government did in the 70s. And I think it bled into the historiography as well. Um, and it took a long time for Again, these 30 plus guerrilla movements that emerged in Mexico during the 60s and 70s to get their historiographical due. This is also another thing I should say. Is this is the most isolated guerrilla movement in all of Latin America. They could never count on Cuban support, even if it had been a possibility, because the Mexican government has a very peculiar relationship to the Cuban government as well. For a long time, Mexico was the only country that opened diplomatic relations to Cuba. And, and the Cubans, from the Cuban perspective, they were not going to do anything to jeopardize that type of relationship. So you have this weird, you have these weird friendships like Fidel Castro being really good friends with a man by the name of Fernando Gutierrez Barrio, who was the head of Mexico's political police, very shady character, torture, eventually will become, you know, high ranking level, a high ranking political member of the, of the Mexican system in the seventies and eighties. Um, so the Cubans would never mess with, with Mexico to begin with, because that's like, that was their only, uh, open diplomatic relationship for a long time in the region. So I think all these things combine to really isolate both in real time, but also historiographically these, these guerrilla movements that finally, um, in the last 10 or 15 years have, have started to get some of their, their due, at least in English language, right? I, I should say that in Mexico's, uh, in Spanish language historiography, they, they started before this. There's also the question of sources, if you want to talk about that. But I actually am curious about sources, just just in brief, because no one else is curious but me. So it has to do with, um, from what I could tell, declassified DFS archives, a lot of those, yeah, and which are now closed again. <laughs> so uh, last I checked. So what are the sources that were used? Like, how did you write this? I imagine interviews, DFS archives. What worked? Yeah. So 
one of the, I, I was very lucky that when I started the research to this project, then President Vicente Fox, and, and I tell my students, this is like the only good thing he did, is that he decided to declassify millions of documents. Really, as a, I think, as a way to make the PRI look bad, and then to present his own right-wing party, the PAN, is kind of like the harbingers of democracy to Mexico. So they declassified millions of DFS, which DFS was like a Mexico's version of the, of the FBI. It's like, it's like the Mexican FBI plus local police offices like the Chicago PD. Like, let's think of it that way, right? They, they like to torture and to disappear people, like we now know of, of the Chicago PD of the 60s and 70s. So, and actually, the FBI had a role in kind of organizing and training the DFS when it was formed in 1947, which is also like a crazy year. That, that's one of these like globally significant years, right? 47, 48. Um, then there was another spy agency called the IPS. They weren't like, they were more like intelligence, like spy agents who, who were sent throughout the country to, to follow people, to follow organizations, to follow, um, people deemed sec- national security interests to the Mexican government. And the third, uh, were like documents from the, the Mexican military, which uh, I think to this day remains like the most opaque institution in Latin America. Like it's really difficult to get information from the Mexican military. Um, and it's probably going to be even more difficult considering current political trends in Mexico. But so those were the documents and, and they started to become readily available 2004, 2005, 2006. And, and that's when I started my, my research. So it was just like, I was very fortunate that it happened at that time because before that I had mentors and other historians telling me, look, you don't have the documents to be able to write this history. Now, well, I, on the American side, I will sing, um, highlight, uh, the great Kate Doyle who works for National Security Archive in 2003. She started putting together documents related, U.S. documents related to the party of the poor. So when I found that online in 2003, I was like, all right, this project can be done. And, and, and Kate Doyle continues to do excellent work uh, for Mexico in, in, at the National Security Archive. And then oral histories, right? And that, that was probably the most challenging in terms of, um, you know, being able to, be, to, to make an entrance into this, like, esoteric, closed world of ex-guerrilla fighters who are still alive. And then from there kind of branching now and, and having people essentially vouch for me so I could go and talk to other people. And that, that took a long time. I got stood up a lot. Um, a lot of interviews fell through, but then the interviews that I, I did manage to conduct were some of the, to me is some of the most fulfilling parts of, of being a historian and a, and a researcher, like the, the interpersonal relationships that were created as a consequence of these interviews and these conversations that I, I, I treasure to this day as a historian. The, the one, the one specific example that I'll, I'll talk about is that in, April of 2007, I joined a week-long bus tour that started in Mexico City, went almost to the U.S.-Mexico border and came back on a bus that was just full of mostly ex-guerrilla fighters from the 70s. So I lived with them for like a, for like a week. Um, and, and it was a pretty amazing experience. I didn't know anyone on that trip, but it ended up being a pretty amazing experience where I, I kind of got – it gave me insight. Even though they weren't directly connected to the guerrillas I was researching, it gave me insight into how these people thought that violent revolution and armed struggle was a viable path of political uh, reform and, and the redress of grievances in the 1970s. Um, it, it, and it was, it, to this day, it was, I still really cherish that, that experience. Alex, that, that's all really interesting. And we're coming up on about an hour here. So um, we're going to have you back to discuss really the meat of the book because, you know, this was the classic historian. Uh, it started earlier and it's more complicated. So we do like 40 minutes of throat clearing, but it's important because to understand the whole thing, you need to understand that. But the question that I want to conclude on, and, and I think this is really, you know, what makes your work so interesting in, in a global context is that it 
like I said before, it, it sort of illuminates this new strategic community, this new strategic approach. So could you maybe place um, the groups that you focus on in light of, of global peasant Marxist theory? Um, and if you could relate it specifically to Maoism, which, which had such a resonance um, amongst uh, intellectuals in the 60s and the 70s, and how this differed and how it related, and then we'll, we'll close out and have you back uh, again soon. Yeah, so both Lucio Cabañas and Genaro Vasquez, when they gave interviews, when they were up in, when they were in arms up in the mountains, you know, waging these, these armed struggles, they both were at pains to emphasize that, uh, their political ide ideology was very local and very national, right? So, so one of the things that made it difficult to kind of tease out their place globally within, uh, an insurgent Marxist left was, you know, their own words saying, we're not pro Soviet, we're not pro China, we're pro Mexican. I think that was Genaro Vasquez who said that in one of the quotes. Um, I think one of the things, one of the ways I think about this is that there is, okay, so there is Cuba and the Cuban revolution as interpreted by people like Lucio Cabañas and Genaro Vasquez, um, did have an impact. But I, I think the impact there is, is, is in the idea of like direct action via armed struggle. And if we think about it in that way, you know, a lot of what they're thinking about is also, you know, goes back to like the late twenties, early thirties, like a very particular moment of, of, of the common turn, right? And, you know, you have guerrilla, guerrilla warfare manuals being produced in like Peru in the 1930s, right? So part of me, and so like this idea of direct action is being from the 60s. To me, it's like, it was really fascinating to think about it. No, it's an earlier moment of the late 20s in particular, before the popular front, that may, that some of these movements and some of these individuals may have been hearkening back to. Um, so I think that's something that, that to this, I think re still requires a, a bit more investigation. Um, in terms of, of Maoism, I think there's like exciting new stuff that's coming on, coming out on the impact of Maoism in Mexico. And I think Lucio Cabañas' group, um, is, and Lucio Cabañas himself, in terms of like his approach to organizing, um, is, it, it's very similar to almost like the mass line, right? And he, he would have never said that. Like he, his movement never would have described their movement as Maoist, but you do see, uh, in terms of how they organize, in terms of how they define themselves as, not entirely a vanguardist party, but as a party that's trying to push the people forward in some ill-defined notion of pro prolonged popular warfare, like you do see echoes of that. And actually the guerrilla movements that will take up Lucio Cabañas' example in the 80s and 1990s, they will be more explicitly, I guess, Maoist in that sense, particularly in terms of tactics and this, this prolonged popular warfare and mass line approach. But I think to me, it's, it's still, it's still this, this combination of the global Right, being inspired by by Vietnam in particular, um, with these local traditionals of local traditions of rebellion that the you know, Mexicans have been waging guerrilla warfare for a long time, and then also national developments. And, and, what, and this is something that happens throughout Latin America. Right, there's a split in the left that happens in the U.S. And it's this new left that emerges in the '60s. There's a cultural new left, but I think there's also a political new left. And and what they're breaking from is a communist party strategy that had been trying to work within the system, so to speak, within Latin America, uh, as a way, you know, as a through parliamentary means or, or congressional means, even if they had been deemed illegal or outlawed, um, as a way to it, it, waiting for these, what was the term, waiting for the objective conditions for revolution to be created. And in that instance, they're trying to identify like the national progressive bourgeoisie, that's going to, uh, you know, get them on the path of historical development, the stages historical development model that they see as the appropriate Marxist one. Um, but the movements like Genaro Vasquez, led by Genaro Vasquez and Lucio Cabañas, uh, what they see is that that hasn't resulted in any meaningful change or reform. 
that has actually, in, from their perspective, especially Hernando Vasquez, he would say that's actually hindered the revolutionary movement in Mexico. The Mexican Communist Party has played a collaborat- collaborationist role with the Mexican government. So we're breaking and we're adopting a, a direct action model that is both touching upon local traditions, but also that's looking toward global current uh, events to, to, for inspiration. And, and it's that mix of, of tactics and ideas that produces at least this particular vector of, of the Mexican new left. Later, when you start to see the development of urban guerrilla movements in Mexico, particularly in the 70s, it'll be a similar dynamic. You have in, young students who break from the youth wing of the Mexican Communist Party. They blame them for inaction. They blame them as not being an authentic leader of the Mexican workers' movement. So they break away and they start to organize an urban guerrilla movement, which in Latin America, after the death of Che Guevara in October 1967, there seems to be, a, a, there is an important push towards urban guerrilla uh, fighting as a model, as it really as inspired by like the Tupamaros in Uruguay and, and some other movements in Argentina and in and, and Brazil. And so... This is like a a much more, this this is all to say this is a much more complicated story than that original, that original model. These are all Cuban imitations or all the derivatives of Cuba. Um, but they, they are obviously in conversation with what's going on globally, but they're still, especially someone like Lucio Cabañas, they're still very rooted in, in, in local revolutionary traditions and hearkening back to the 1910 revolution, bringing up radical readings of Cardenas and Cardenismo, and then combining that with his own like idiosyncratic Marxism. That is very rural, that it's very rooted in the communities that see him as a leader and that he sees as trying to lead in, in some sort of revolutionary struggle against the Mexican state. Alex Avina, thank you so much. We will have you back soon. That was super compelling, and I hope our, I know our audience enjoyed it. Thank you so much, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah.